Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about fashion trends, retail openings, IGI, and some interesting high-end brand partnerships. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from JCK World Headquarters in New York City. <laughs> Love it. One World Trade. One World Trade, yes. That lovely building we don't get to see enough. I don't enough but I'm glad uh, I'm glad you made it in it does feel like global headquarters it has that global headquarters. yes it's a it's a cool place I, I'm always psyched when I when I go in here me too I always feel kind of special I have actually a, a friend of mine took a really beautiful portrait of the oculus you know the shopping mall that we always have yes. to enter as we get to the office and I have it in my office and my you know, Nico comes up, my son, and looks at it. He's like, is that New York? And it just has that feeling. I think he just intuited somehow in his four and a half year old brain that of course it's New York. Where else do you see that kind of architecture in those soaring spaces? Well, I guess you see them in lots of places, but we don't really see them here in LA. So it was really nice. And I do, I do miss the office. So nice to see you there. I wanted to mention that last night, so of course we're recording this the week of, let's see, today is August 9th. I went to an event at a store, a really fabulous fashion accessories art store called Just One Eye. If you're somebody who considers yourself in the know about where to shop in various cities, Just One Eye has to be on your list. Moved about four years ago, just before the pandemic, to this, talk about soaring space a beautiful gallery-like space um, in what's now called the Sycamore District. The main cross streets are Santa Monica and La Brea, primarily. Those are the big cross streets, but it's this little street called Sycamore, and it's got a ton of little gallery spaces and really buzzy restaurants. Lizzie Mandler, LA-based designer, just opened up across the street from Just One Eye. But Just One Eye is just a really a space to go and admire jewelry. The thing is, they have lots of incredible jewelry. None of it is marked as a designer, so you kind of want wander around, you don't quite know what you're looking at unless you recognize it. They have a huge amount of case space devoted to Cartier. It's one, They're one of the few retailers allowed to retail Cartier outside of the boutiques. And last night I went for a trunk show, an event with a Paris-based designer named Sylvie Corbelin, who does incredible, really poetic work. She uses all kinds of different metals and all kinds of different stones, antiques. She's a former antique dealer who then gravitated to jewelry. And she just does really magical pieces. A lot of them are quite large in terms of their volume, but they're they're so unique. You can look at them and really recognize them as hers. All of them seem to tell little stories. And so there's wonderful vintage jade set with diamonds and beautiful uses of different colored stones and carved stones, carved pearl. This store just opened or has it been no, open no, for a while? No, the store has been open a long time. I don't know how long it's been in Hollywood for many, many years, but they moved to this new space four years ago. It's not a new store. But thanks to my connection through the publicist, Lionel Janest, he's got a lot of clients, quite a bit of them European. And when they come through LA, they'll often do a trunk show at Just One Eye. Anyway, it was wonderful. And one of the fun things was that Jennifer Tilly, the actress who, you know, she's not like hugely acting right now, but she's associated with the Chucky movies. You might've seen her. A lot of people just know her from, she was a character actress for many years, but she's also a really sophisticated jewelry lover. She was there at the event and a small group of us 
us with Lionel went to dinner across the street at a very trendy happening restaurant called Gigi's. It was just wonderful to watch, to listen to her kind of riff on the designer she's after and who she collects. She was wearing a couple of Sylvie's pieces, some really a big oversized ring and big dramatic earrings with like a lot of negative space. You know, next on our list is Taffin, James de Givenchy Taffin in New York, who's, you know, really a, quite the get these days. So it was, it was really interesting. It was fun. Sort of you get that mix of Hollywood and designers and these really fabulous emporiums that cater to a really high spending client. And it's always fascinating to see. So what was kind of the, the, the price points there? Was it very expensive? You very know, pricey? I think the jewelry, a lot of the jewelry, like I was talking to one of the salespeople, she said Asley, which is a brand in based in Santa Monica, does really, really well for them. I think the price points are around 4,000, four to six. So it's not super high. I'm sure they have high pieces. Daniela Viega sells there and she has gorgeous jewels that probably regularly cost, you know, 20, 20,000 plus. So it, it sort of depends. I'm sure their, their bread and butter is a little more closer to the three to $5,000 range. Not that I know that directly. So it's just my, my hunch. And it was fun. It was fun to be at dinner with a collector who really, really loves jewelry and has a really keen and discerning eye. So that's what happens when you live in LA. There you go. Yeah. Did she bring her killer doll or no? She didn't bring her killer doll. Thank God. Um, Chucky was somewhere, but she did meant it, it came up in conversation and I meant to like prod a little further because I wasn't sure if there was like a new Chucky movie coming out or what. But Oh, and by the way, I also snuck out to see Barbie yesterday and it was as masterful. And I, I've seen that too. Clever. So you have seen it? Yes, I have. Yeah. I mean, what did you think? I, I liked it. I, I mean, I think it's about as good as you can get for a, a Barbie movie. I mean, which, you know, is that sort of sounds like faint praise, but I I agree in the sense that it's hard in the wrong hands. It could have been really clunky and merch oriented. And it does feel a little awkward to sort of sit there and feel like you're being sold to when these products are available in store and there's a whole movie around them. But Greta Gerwig, the director, I just thought did a masterful job of weaving in all the complications and nuances around Barbie. You know, it's not. Yeah, like it's hard to imagine a sequel because you, you feel that she's said everything that she's wants to say about Barbie. Yes, true. And uh, I, I'd be surprised. I, it would almost feel like she was selling out if she did a sequel. But it was really great. I have to give props to Ryan Gosling, who just made me laugh out loud in the theater more than three times, at least. <laughs> I, I thought it was good. I thought it was thoughtful. I mean, it wasn't my favorite thing I've ever watched, but my wife and son definitely liked it a lot. They both seen it twice. They went to see it <laughs> and then they wanted me to see it. So they took me along. That's well, there you go. I mean, that's a, a vote of approval. The costumes were incredible. The attention to detail and all the ways that Barbie land is represented. And, you know, of course, there was a good deal of jewelry and, and decor and fashion there. And certainly we've seen the jewelry industry respond to that with just so many Barbie themed emails and lots and lots of pink, which may be a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is, of course, fall fashion and what we're going to see this fall and the hints and bubblings of what's coming up. Do you think that, I mean, this is now a, a phenomenon, this movie, do you think it's going to have any effect on fashion? Well, yeah. I mean, I do think the pink thing, I mean, Barbie was announced, I think, last summer. We started, in fact, JCK, our Annie Davidson, one of our contributors, wrote a piece about 
Barbie themed jewels last summer. So of course, we've been talking about pink for a long time. Viva Magenta, Pantone's color of the year for 2023 is, you know, a darker, richer, saturated version of that pink. I do think pink's got legs. I think for sure we'll continue to see it. Anyways, I've been thinking about fall and kind of what these colors might be. It does seem like there's also a big red push for fall. There were a lot of red, really racy, bright, vibrant reds on the fall runways. And so it does seem like maybe that pink will segue a bit into a darker or mature into a darker red. But I think we can count on pink for this fall, winter, next spring in general. It's like green and blue a bit. It's just now a perennial color. So I do think that people can continue to count on those pink jewels they might have invested in to catch the Barbie wave. And one of the complicated things about fashion and trends in the age of social media and the age of celebrity dressing, in the age of just all the different ways we have of discovering new products is that there are a lot of lot of trends that go on at once and often they're competing trends. You know, we might see this profusion of pink and this kind of dressing that you see with Barbie, which is really elaborate and colorful and bright and there's lots of accessories. And at the same time, there's this ongoing stealth wealth or quiet luxury trend, which is quite what the name implies. It's not about so much being noticed, but it is about having really luxe pieces that you know are fine and are high quality, but less about standing out in a very big way. Some of that we'll see in a greater embrace of white metals, which just don't have that look at me factor as yellow gold. So we'll see a, and we are seeing a growing interest in white gold and platinum and silver in more sculptural architectural style pieces. I don't know if that's just the pendulum swinging back from yellow where we've been for a long time, or if it has something to do with like a modernity that white metal seems to capture better. Yellow gold has a classic or traditional feel, but white metal tends to feel a little sleeker in the way that we always envision the future, you know, in that kind of galactic space cosmic vision of the future we all have in our heads. It doesn't seem like a yellow metal place. It seems like a white metal place. So possibly there's just a growing interest in looking more contemporary and modern. When I spoke to Randy, our jewelry director, for the next special report that's coming out, she mentioned that she's gotten three requests from three different editors at three totally different publications for horseshoe-themed jewelry, anything with a horseshoe. And she mused that maybe it had something to do with Barbie, which is, you know, that whole storyline about Ken's obsession with horses. And you see he's wearing a big horseshoe pendant in a good portion of the movie. It's hilarious, first of all. And then you see all of those squads of Beyonce fans heading out to her show. And of course, she had the Tiffany silver cowboy hat. There's a lot of cowgirl, disco cowgirl kind of aesthetic that's coming in. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is a bigger deal for fall as a result of all these different pop culture influences from Barbie to Beyonce. The last thing I'll say about fall and fall styles is that jewelry, the jewelry industry does not have a maxim in the way that the fashion world does about the lengths of hemlines. You know, skirt lengths go up. I guess it means the economy is doing well. If you're wearing mini skirts, then when skirt lengths go down, it's a reflection of the economy being a little tougher. Is that right, Rob? Does that that is the maxim, right? What that uh, I've, I've never heard that honestly. You've you've never heard that hemlines go up and down, or that? We- no, I'm sorry, I've never heard that. Well, 
I'm going to Google well, it. I, I believe it's true. The hemline index is a theory that suggests that skirt length or hemlines rise or fall along with stock prices. I'm mm. reading this from Wikipedia, by the way, so take take it for it what you will. But most common version of the theory is that skirt lengths get shorter in good economic times, like the 1920s and the 1960s, and longer in bad, such as after the 1929 Wall Street crash. So we don't have that similar maxim, but we do have changing necklace lengths. So it's our own version of the hemline, where there are these swinging necklaces, even opera length style chains, or just long pendants that draw your eye down the body. And at times, those are those are what's in. Right now, what we're seeing is a much more emphasis on collar length pieces. So not exactly collars, you know, not things that hug the neck in like the way a ribbon necklace might, or chokers, I should say, not chokers, the ones that are really tight around the neck, but collars that sit right at your collarbone and are quite dramatic and chunky. So I think if a retailer is betting on a fashionable mix for fall, be sure to stock some of these chunkier necklace lengths. They could be chains, they could be torque necklaces. Often they have a big pendant that sits right there at the collar, sort of give a bit of drama and architecturalness to the look. So those are all interesting. I, I like those trends. Here's an interesting question, which I've been thinking about, you know, Barbie was this big movie based on a consumer product. And that was one of the things that pre-sold. It was the fond memories that people had of this consumer product. Is there any kind of jewelry that could perhaps at one point or a jewelry brand kind of be made into a film? I mean, you had Breakfast at Tiffany's, but that was obviously based on a book. Well, it's funny you ask. I am... Literally in the midst, I just submitted a story for the next jewelry section running in the Times on August 29th. And the whole story is about jewelry inspired by nostalgia and especially playfulness. And I think Mm -hmm. part of it is just the zeitgeist, the fact that we have a Barbie movie that's, you know, broken. It's like, I think, crossed the billion dollar mark recently, just breaking box office records here. In terms of jewelry, so I did a whole story around toy and play themed jewelry. You know, the jewelry, I I don't think there's anything as iconic as a Barbie, but, you know, we have those like sweetie necklaces, the kind that used to, you know, they were little candies and they'd be on a string and and so it'd be a necklace, but you'd eat it along the way. Lauren Rubinsky, a Paris-based designer, does a version of that. I think she might be best known for that. There was a great line of jewelry also in Vegas by a designer named Tatiana Van Lenker. Her line is called Van, and she's got a collection of Van robots. And they're inspired by um, this retro-futuristic vision of robots, the kind you might associate with Rosie the Robot. Remember the maid from the Jetsons? Yes. It's I, I ended up looking up Rosie the Robot on YouTube and was just so charmed by that retro vision of the future that we all fell in love with in the Jetsons. But so Tatiana Van Lenker has these pendants that are articulated robots, all made in like 18 karat gold and precious stones. And they're just so charming. And, you know, I don't know that any of this is going to lead to some blockbuster movie, but it's just fun. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of references to childhood. Um, Boucheron did an incredible high jewelry collection that they released in July in Paris called More is More. And I communicate with the designer over email and she designed it. So her name is Claire and I hope I'm not butchering the last name is Chosny, C-H-O-I-S-N-E. She's a genius. And I think everybody who is aware of her work would agree. But this collection, More is More, was conceived in 2020. There was a second lockdown in Paris. She and her team were about to head out to Africa for like a research and inspiration trip. It was canceled and they all had to convene on teams. And there was just a lot of obviously consternation and sadness, disappointment. 
So she and her team went on Pinterest and started looking for inspiration that sparked joy. The whole pursuit of, of this particular collection or the whole inspiration was really what brings us joy? How can we transmit that in a collection? And they ended up with images of the Memphis design movement, which I didn't know that much about it. But of course, when you start looking at these images, you'll remember it's the 1980s. It was named for a group of uh, Italian architects and designers who gathered in Milan. They were known as the Memphis Milano group. And it had the Memphis name. It was actually taken from a Bob Dylan song and is another reference to the city in Egypt. This design movement was really associated with that aesthetic you think of when you think of the 80s. Bold colors, geometric prints and clashing patterns, really bright kind of colors that don't always go together. When you look at images of that design movement, you think the 80s, and there's just seems to be a lot of nostalgia for that period. And a lot of designers who are looking back to it to, again, sort of think of a simpler time that was more about play, certainly when they were children. One of the biggest talking pieces of this More is More collection from Boucheron was a necklace called the Solve Me Necklace, and it is literally a deconstructed Rubik's Cube made in precious materials. So each surface of the cube has a different color. It's either mother of pearl, gray spinels, pink sapphire, it is just a remarkable piece and it's a remarkable collection. I love it as a trend. I mean, I, I think it has legs because, again, it's really about seeking happiness where we can find it in a world that's growing ever more complicated. Let's have a little bit of relief here, a little dopamine hit to get through. But these pieces are so much fun and they are really just wonderfully nostalgic. And for any of us, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so it, it hits me at a place that feels so sentimental and so it just makes me makes me happy. So I think we are going to see more of that this fall and perhaps well into the 2020s, well into the rest of this decade. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. I believe you wanted to talk, you've noticed a lot of retail openings? Yes, I certainly have. It's in the luxury world in general, but I'm specifically focused on the watch industry. I think in the span of one or two weeks, I must have gotten five or six, maybe more announcements of a certain flagship opening. Um, Tag Heuer opened its big Fifth Avenue flagship in New York City in early July. Panerai opened Casa Panerai, its largest flagship, also in New York City, June 1st. Uh, let's see, Booker which, you know, is now Torneau Booker here in the U.S. It was purchased by Booker, the Swiss retailer in 2018. And they just renovated and celebrated the reopening of their Time Dome in Las Vegas. I believe it's their biggest store in the U.S. I went to a Panerai boutique opening in the Topanga Mall, which is here in L.A. It's you know, maybe 25 minutes from Beverly Hills. But this mall that I used to go to as a kid is now luxury central. I mean, Hermes is building out a huge presence there. There's all the big names, Alexander McQueen and Gucci and I'm sure there's a Cartier. I mean, it's just incredible. These sort of tertiary or maybe secondary malls now 
are heaving with luxury clients and luxury stores. I spoke to David Hurley, the deputy CEO of Watches of Switzerland. He described it as a luxury land grab that, you know, you go out and you see what locations there are. And this is happening worldwide, but I'd say the U.S. is a huge focus. And I find it fascinating that here we are three years after the pandemic. There was a lot of focus on digital, a lot of talk about the future of luxury is digital. And what we found is brick and mortar experience is more important than ever. Yeah. And I, I think you also see a lot of D2C e-commerce companies opening retail stores simply because it's the costs of customer acquisition for these online companies are still extremely, extremely high. So they look at these stores as a good way to acquire customers and a good way to get your name out because it gives you a sense of uh, legitimacy, perhaps, to have a store. It makes you seem solid that you're something that's not going away. Here's a just a factoid to add to that. Um, this was a WWD story from July 26th. And here's just the bullet point underneath that. Well, I'll read you the headline and then the, the teaser underneath it. LVMH drops billions on stores, comma, events. The world's biggest luxury group spent 1.5 billion euros on commercial real estate in the first half. That's crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. And But, you know, at some point it's like, well, they're going to take everything. Where is there going to be any real estate left? Right. And I also thought it was uh, very interesting that recently, I think it was the chief financial officer of LVMH said they're going to remodel every Tiffany's store that hasn't been remodeled already because they feel it's not up to the kind of higher standard that they want. And a lot of people will agree that some of the Tiffany stores were not necessarily, some of them did need a redo. However, to redo every one of them, it seems to be pretty drastic. And it it shows perhaps a disconnect between what LVMH wants to do with Tiffany and what Tiffany has been historically. And I'm not saying it's not going to work because LVMH, this is their standard playbook. And I think this is what everybody expected them to do. But Tiffany's always kind of had this quote unquote, democratic, small d image for a luxury brand and that it was accessible and you could buy silver there and you could buy playing cards there. And now they definitely want to elevate it a bit. And we'll see if that works. I, I just spoke to somebody who went into the flagship and he was not that psyched about it. He, he was a little put off about it. By the way, I'm sure the flagship is extremely beautiful and well done and they spent tons of money on it. But it just shows how different they are than what Tiffany has been traditionally. Yeah, I guess time will tell. I you know, I think right. I, I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I did speak to Tiffany CEO last November about the big push. Well, it was really about the growth in jewelry manufacturing and how a lot of these big brands were investing in expanding their factories. But of course, Tiffany's retail ambitions came up and he talked about the landmark opening. This was back in November and the landmark, of course, reopened in April. He also talked about renovating all these flagships that they have all around the world. Seoul yeah. in Sao Paulo. Right. And there was but, a, but now they're, they're not going to just renovate flagships. They're going to renovate everything. All everything. Every yeah. Which is a lot of money. It's going to cost them. What else? I mean, I I think we wanted to also talk about there was an acquisition of a big lab. Yes. International Gemological Institute, which is one of the biggest labs in our industry, uh, was bought. You know, this had been up for sale for a while, and I don't think anybody was shocked when it was sold, but 
I think a lot of people were surprised at the price tag. First of all, it was sold to Blackstone, which is a very well-known investment company, and it was sold for $569.65 million. When you're dealing with that kind of numbers, I don't know why you'd need to do the 0. .65, but uh, I guess that's just uh, how it rolls. Um, and people were, were a little surprised, and I have to believe on some level it's because IGI has a leadership position in lab-grown where people see this big uh, growth as opposed to the traditional industry. And I think that helped them a lot. I think they were lucky as far as timing and that we're just coming off the pandemic and you know the pandemic years were great for jewelry and for lab-grown and for things that service the jewelry industry like grading labs. So that's a crazy number. We'll see what Blackstone wants to do with it. You know, it's probably not a lot of money in the scheme of things from Blackstone's perspective because they do control so much money. But um, a lot of times it's the, the companies that, that kind of service the industry that sometimes do better than the actual industry. So, you know, the fact that uh, IGI is this kind of service provider, it definitely reaped the, the benefits when the, the industry was going nuts. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I remember when it was a much smaller operation when I started, so they've, they've really uh, taken off. One other trend, just because we have a few more minutes left, I have a story in the Times that just is it's running in tomorrow's print edition, but it's online today. And it points to a set of influences that I think a lot of traditional jewelers or traditional watchmakers haven't really thought about, but it's about the tie-ups and partnerships that high-end watch brands have with the music industry, but not just music in a broad sense. It's really about the electronic and hip-hop sort of ends of, you know, the EDM scene and the hip-hop scene, chiefly led by Artemar Piguet, which has really been in that space for quite a while. They've teamed with Jay-Z, gosh, almost 20 years ago, it's been where they put out a watch with him and then Richard Mill with Pharrell Williams had a watch about 2019, a, a nearly a million dollar watch, I should say, that was co-designed and collaborated with Pharrell. Audemars Piguet named Mark Ronson the super producer, one of its brand ambassadors in 2022. And just earlier in July at the Montreux Jazz Festival, he curated the closing concert on AP's behalf, pulled together some of his favorite musical artists and put together this great concert, which I watched literally in a car as I was driving down to Mexico on a live stream. And he's wearing a gold Royal Oak that he bought for himself years ago after, and I talked to him on the phone and he mentioned that he'd been hanging out in a bar with Daft Punk, the French electronic duo, saw some cool guy that was in that the group wearing a gold royal oak from the 80s and like needed to have it so there was this really natural sort of relationship between him and the brand when they came and asked him to be an ambassador it made sense but i think what it points to is that you know we used to think that traditional watch brands and for that matter fine jewelers needed to partner with classic musicians or you know if they were going to sponsor anything in the world of music it had to be like a symphony or a pianist or somebody that lived up to that very refined rarefied world that they wanted to sort of be in and, and cater to. But so much of the luxury scene has moved to a younger generation that loves dance music, that loves hip hop and goes to Ibiza and clubs all night and still has all kinds of money to drip in diamonds and fancy watches. And I think that maybe some jewelers might find that surprising, like maybe they just haven't really clued in. There are a lot of partnerships between very, very high end brands and a scene that feels very young and maybe not that luxury, but certainly is. Zenith partners yeah. with Carl. And Pop. even even uh, we should note that even hip hop is 
I believe a half century years old. So it's not that new. Right. And I, I guess hip hop is, has its own relationship with jewelry. And we had Vicky Toback, who of course yes. wrote Ice Cold about hip hop's relationship with especially diamonds, but jewelry in general. So hip hop, you're right. It, it's been mm -hmm. around, but it's, you know, maybe 25 years ago, it wasn't as mainstream as it is today. It's so incredibly mainstream that it's just interesting. It's interesting to see brands that really consider themselves like the creme de la creme in the prestige sector, partnering with, you know, people who spin at all night clubs and right. make watches with them. Like Dennis made a watch with the DJ Carl Cox that like mimics his DJ set, you know, and his decks. And, you know, when I spoke to the CEO, so much of it was about connecting with the consumer and not so much even selling watches. It's really about getting a buzz that brings new clients to the brand or makes new clients recognize, wait a minute, you know, I've got enough money to buy a fancy watch. If Carl Cox likes it, maybe it's worth my time, you know, and money. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Good to talk with you. You too, uh, Rob. Thank you very much. Enjoy uh, the rest of your hot August. Oh, man. It's been brutal. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.